chapter 2, Esther chapter 2, we stand to honor God's word as we read it. Thank you for your participation in all of that. Esther, we are dealing with her life and the life of Mordecai as well, and the series title is this, For These Moments. And this is sermon number four in this series. And uh, we've been in chapter two for a few weeks and uh, continuing in this chapter. And the goal isn't to rush through. We want to make sure that we're understanding what's going on and benefiting from the account that God has seen fit to record for us. So in verse number one of chapter two, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered... Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace to the house of the women unto the custody of Hegi the king's chamberlain keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he, referring to Mordecai, brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, And when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him. And he speedily gave her her things for purification with such things as belonged to her. And seven maidens which were meet to be given her, out of the king's house, and he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. The thought for tonight, the title of the message is this, Raising Kids of Conviction. Raising Kids of Conviction. I'll pray and then you may be seated. Father, thank you for the time together. Thank you for allowing us to sing the wonderful truth that we've been singing about. Thank you for the excellence and the ministry that's gone into that. And I'm I'm so grateful that we're able to praise you. And then, Father, thank you that we can assemble tonight through this means to hear and God by your grace to respond to the preaching of your word help us to remember father 
as we hear from our homes and the comfort of our chairs or couches that hearing the Word of God does not make us successful spiritually, but it's our response to the Word of God. So would you please help the communication of it, and would you please help our responsiveness to it? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much for standing. We've dealt with this already. I'll briefly mention it so that we can remember where or remember the context out of which this story is, occurs, that Ahasuerus, his princes, his servants, his royal entourage are in the process of rounding up all the fair young virgins in the land. And uh, this is going to be the means by which he chooses a queen to replace the one that he demoted. And uh, it's just obviously a godless display of self-absorption and self-gratification. Well, one of the young ladies that was caught up in this tidal wave of selfishness was a young Hebrew girl named Hadassah or Esther. Esther's early years, as we read in the text, were marked with great loss. We're not given much detail about it, other than it was simply the state of her life at the time. But it doesn't mean we can't comprehend that it was very, very challenging for her. When she was very young, her father and mother died. Now, it might have been due to some kind of sickness. We read about the captivity that had gone on in the life of Judah and the nation of Israel. And it might have been due to captivity or some battle with the opposing army. Or as invading soldiers came in and laid waste to different parts of Israel. It might have been due to some pestilence or famine. Whatever the cause, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But the result was the same. That Esther was deprived of her parents. She was, for a moment in time, she was an orphan. And the two people that, from a human perspective, loved her the most, were at some way, in some way, at some point, both of them, were taken away from her at an early age in her life. And we don't have to know all the details to understand. That would be incredibly difficult. It would be overwhelmingly challenging. And there's really no way to understand the depth of that kind of loss or that kind of grief or or that kind of confusion as a child unless you've been through something similar. But in this account, there is another significant player in this narrative whom God used as much as he did Esther. In fact, he used both this man and this woman equally, and they both fulfilled very specific roles in God's purpose of protecting, preserving, and promoting his people. You see, Esther was deprived of her parents, but she was not deprived of someone to love her, and to care for her. Now, this isn't the point of the message, but it's worth mentioning that everyone should have someone who tries to love them and invest in them. You know, we, we can't help that different people go through challenges and go through great losses and sorrows. We can't prevent that people are going to experience difficulties and adversities And sometimes those adversities will be brought upon them by their own 
poor actions. Sometimes those adversities will be brought upon them by the actions and the decisions of others. But it should, it should never be said that when people who are hurting and who are lonely and who seemingly on this earth from the human perspective have no one to care for them, it should never be said that they can't find a friend to love them at West Valley Baptist Church. And we, we obviously can't control everything that goes on in people's lives and, and the events that occur that bring them to places of great sorrow and difficulty and tragedy. We can't prevent all of that. We can't ha- ha- help all of that. But we ought to be willing to love every person that God puts in our path to love. And it's not always going to be easy, but there are times when people are deprived of security and deprived of affection that it's God's design they have, but for whatever reason, He's allowed them to experience the loss of it. And His expectation is that His people, those people who name the name of Jesus Christ, those people who claim to be following the Son of God, the God of love, the God who loves us first, that they would then communicate that love to those who have no one to love them. This world is full of people. The Treasure Valley is full of people who need someone to show a genuine interest in them. Not because of what we can get out of them, but because of what God could do in their life for them and how He could restore them out of the ashes of brokenness, even when it's brought upon themselves. That every time God gives us an opportunity to love someone, we do it faithfully through Jesus Christ. And more than just waiting for opportunities, we actively look for opportunities to share the love of God with people who so desperately need it. Now, Mordecai was her cousin. In in verse 7, it says that she had neither father, nor, or excuse me, verse 7, he brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, so this would have been his cousin. Obviously, there was a significant age disparity, as there can be at times, but between cousins. But so when her parents were dead, Mordecai didn't look for some way to shift responsibility. He didn't look for a way to keep himself uninvolved. He didn't try to take the easy way out. He didn't just dismiss this as, well, it's what happens sometimes. We're all going through a hard time and there's really not a lot that I can do. And I've got my own situation to worry about. I've got my own financial situation. I've got my, man, this would really be an inconvenience to me right now. He didn't look for a way to not be involved, to not help bear the load. He looked for a way to actively be involved in helping this young girl. And so the text is very descriptive about it. In verse, at the end of verse number 7, when her father and mother were dead, he took her for his own daughter. That's an amazing statement. Literally, it's saying this, that he loved her no differently than if she were his biological child. He did not look at her as just kind of the one that he ended up with because no one else would take her. He loved her and valued her in the absence of her parents' life. He loved her as though... She was his own daughter. And as a result of that love for her, the text in verse number 7 also gives another very significant indication about how Mordecai dealt with Esther. Look at the beginning of verse number 7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. The, The idea of the word brought up 
is to take something from a state of vulnerability, immaturity, a state of youth and weakness, to help them arrive to a state of strength, a state of maturation, a state of not being as vulnerable, a state of being able to handle things and make decisions. He brought her up. Uh, Many of you are in the process of planting gardens. You're already doing it or you're working on doing it. And you understand what it is to take, it, to take a, the life of something that is small and to put it in a position uh, where it can grow and it can be nourished and it can succeed. And then you, you nurture that and you water it and you weed it and you add nutrients to it so that one day it's in a state of maturity where it can produce fruit. And that's what it means when the text says that Mordecai brought her up. He wasn't indifferent. He wasn't just trying to keep her quiet and keep her out of the way. He was actively involved in taking her from a state of vulnerability, a state of immaturity, to a state of maturity where she could be a productive, contributing member, not just of society, but of the purpose of God. You say, what did, what did Mordecai bring her up in? Well, The text doesn't specifically say. But based on the kind of man that Mordecai was, and based on the kind of woman that he expected Esther to be when she became queen, we have some indication. Number one, I think it's safe to say he brought her up in how to love God. How to know and how to honor, how to be devoted to God. Look, kids don't just automatically know that. They have to be brought up in faith. He taught her how to love her country and her people. We see a reference to that here in verse number 10. And he said, he, at that time he said, don't reveal your nationality. But there was a deliberateness behind it. And so he taught her, you need to, you need to remember from where you came and you need to love the people and the nation that God has made you a part of. He taught her how to trust God. And she's about, she's on the cusp of entering into a situation that was far outside of anything that she possibly would have ever anticipated. And yet, based on her conduct, there's evidence that she learned how to trust God. And that would have come through Mordecai. She learned how to submit even in the face of great difficulty, there's this notion out there that the only time we submit is when we fully agree. But that concept is, is not in the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about submission when it, there is a direct command to disobey God. But according to the customs and the way that the laws were in that day, I'm not endorsing this, but this was to whatever degree you want to say it in ancient times, this practice was lawful. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily we would say God, God condoned it as his original plan, but this is the, the advantage that kings, though they were wrong, they took it, and they took advantage of these women, and yet he taught Esther, listen, we don't really have a choice in this but you can learn to submit through some very difficult circumstances and see how God will bring, that, bring good out of that. This is what we would say 
about Mordecai raising Esther, this is what I would say. That he raised Esther to have godly conviction. Well, that word conviction is, a, is an increasingly rare word in our culture. And it, it's one that people are afraid of or that people don't understand. When we're talking about conviction, we're talking about absolutes. You know, this, this idea that what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me and what's true for me isn't necessarily true for you is completely foreign to the truth of God. There are absolute truths that apply to all of us. And the individual creation does not get to define what his or her truth is. The creator defines what our truth is. There are things that do not change, and they do not change because there is a God. Here's a statement that, depending on the crowd, could cause some serious frustration. There is a right and a wrong way to live life. All, any way to live life is not acceptable. No, there are absolute rights and there are absolute wrongs. I'm not saying that they're popular, and I'm not saying that people across the board are concerned about this, simply stating the fact that according to the revelation of God through His Word, that there is a right way to live life, and there is a wrong way to live life. No, you can't control everything that happens to you, but you can control how you respond to everything that happens to you. And while life may not be fair, God can use you and God can take care of you when you live life with conviction. Now think about this. When Mordecai was bringing Esther up, there's no indication in the text that he knew what was going to happen to her. It's very possible that he was as surprised as the next family at the circumstances that came upon his precious Hadassah. It's very possible that when that announcement, that declaration was given, and the, the royal soldiers go around gathering up these young girls and taking them from their homes, um, whether the parents or the daughter wanted it or not, forcibly taking them from their homes. It's very possible Mordecai was surprised at what was going on. Also notice this, Mordecai didn't always have control over her. Now, when it uses the state, makes the statement in verse number 7, he brought up Esther, that implies there was a time when he did have control over her. He had power to direct her life. But then this event occurs and he no longer has control over her. When the time came that he no longer had control over her, or even what happened to her, he did have some influence, and that was because he had raised her to have conviction. Now here's the evidence. Here's some evidence in the text. Not all of it, but some of the evidence in our text of Esther's conviction. In verse number 9, notice this, and the maiden pleased him, talking about Haggai, the, the man who was in charge of overseeing these women as they were brought into the royal custody. And uh, he had favor on him. And this, this doesn't have to do with the, the physical attractiveness of Esther. And, and please don't misunderstand the, the statement that I'm making here. But every girl that was being brought there was physically attractive. So Esther had to stand out for a reason other than just physical beauty. 
and it based on the way the story unfolds and the way that this text it deals with this, it had to do with her spirit. You see, many young women in this situation could have demonstrated a bitter spirit. And we would, we would from a human perspective, understand that. We would understand if there was some resentment. We would understand if there was anger. We would understand if there was bitterness. We would understand if there was a young girl who was very frustrated and angry because she had plans for this life and now that's been interrupted and she is very uncertain about the future. We would understand if there was resentment. It's also possible that some of these girls were self-absorbed. If you look down in verse number 12, uh, down through verse 14, the implication is that whatever a young girl required before she went to the king, that she was given that. And it's possible many of these girls, can I say it this way, were very focused on themselves. And I'm going to do everything I can to earn the king's favor, and I'm going to manipulate, and I'm going to, I'm going to make an effort to exalt myself. And maybe a term that we use today, and this can be true of women or men, would be high maintenance. It could be some high maintenance young ladies, and there's nothing about Esther that gives that indication. And here's the reason why. Her spirit was a godly spirit. I'm not saying she enjoyed all of this, but she wasn't filled with bitterness. And uh, she wasn't filled with a self-centeredness. There was something about her spirit that demonstrated concern for others and a humility before God. Verse number 10, another evidence of her conviction was this. Her submission to authority didn't change. Now, in verse 10, Mordecai had charged her not to reveal her nationality. And the reason why becomes more obvious as the story unfolds. But she could have rejected that influence in her life. You know, at this point, Mordecai, the only influence he has over her is whatever influence she allows him to have. And she could have had this defiant spirit, as many young people do, the moment they experience a little bit of freedom from underneath the oversight of their parents. Their parents can make a suggestion or give a warning, and they have a flippant and a defiant attitude that I can handle this, and you don't know what's best for me, and I'm going to do, my, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to live my life my own way. But that wasn't the attitude of Esther. She understood that he's been looking out for me and God has used him in my life. And if following his instruction was good for me when I was at home, then it's going to be good for me now when I'm dealing with this very unique circumstance. And she trusted that God uses that authority for her benefit. The evidence of the conviction in her life, the godly conviction, if we could sum it up this way, was that she was consistent. She didn't suddenly become a woman of a good spirit or a submissive heart when she was taken captive. This is what Esther was. She was what she was when she was taken into custody, just the same as she was when she was in Mordecai's home. Godly conviction produces consistency, even in the face of great challenges. Godly conviction produces consistency even in the face of great challenges. 
my parents, when I was young, this will be a shock to some of you, but my parents struggled with me. And uh, I think the word that my mom has used many times is stubborn, but it took a lot of effort to, I don't remember this, maybe it's from blacking out from all of the pain, maybe it's just because I'm self-absorbed, maybe it's because I only remember what I choose to remember, and I was always right in my own eyes. (laughs) I'm joking about all of that. But... Apparently, I took a lot of work to mold, and that there were a lot of difficult battles. I do remember some of them. And so there was a time when they went and talked to their pastor and got some counsel about how things were going and how best to handle this. And the pastor, according to what my parents have told me, the pastor told them something like this, you don't know how God is going to use your son one day. You don't know what God has in mind for him. You don't know what God will call him to. You don't know what God will expect of him. You don't know what God will cause him or allow him to face in his life. So you need to be faithful to raise him. You need to be faithful to love him. You need to learn how to be firm. But you need to do it in a loving, in a consistent way. To help establish in his heart conviction. I want to remind you of a couple of things as dads and moms. I want to remind our grandparents of this. I want to remind our Sunday school workers of this. I want to remind every person that has any any influence over children at West Valley Baptist Church or through other means. I want to remind you of this. You know these things, but it's good to be reminded of this. Number one, you don't know what God wants to do with your child one day. Now, we like to come up with plans. I like to dream about what my children's lives will look like as adults. I'm in here right now struggling not to look over here to my right. Miss Brenda's playing, and her daughter Emma is about to graduate, and my daughter's sitting over there near her. And Alex is about to graduate. And can I just be honest with you? It grosses me out. And it's not that I'm getting old. It's that they're getting old. And I don't understand how that works. But I'm not old. They are getting old at a rate they need to stop getting older at. But I dream. I do. In spite of my whining and pathetic uh, moans about my children, especially Alexandra and Ashlyn's not bar, far behind reaching the stage to where their lives are on the cusp of beginning to radically change, hopefully in good ways, I dream about what that can look like for them. I don't just dream about that for them. I dream about it for the other young men and young women in this church. But can I remind you, whatever your dreams are, you don't know What God's plan for your child is. And you can have these ideas and you can have these designs. But in spite of our best effort and preparation, we don't know what God's purpose for them is. And we don't know what difficulties or trials God will allow them to face. Mordecai brought Esther up with great tenderness and love and with a great effort to produce conviction in her life. But he did not know 
what, was, what God was going to put before her. He didn't know immediately the challenges that would be presented to her. And neither did he know the great way in which God would use her to influence an entire nation, an entire kingdom. You don't know. But can I remind you of this? You don't have to know to prepare them for it. Oh, that's such an encouraging truth. I don't have to know everything that God wants to do with Alexandra or with Ashlyn or with any of the other young ladies or young men here. I don't have to know what God wants to do with them specifically in order to prepare them for it. Because God knows. Mordecai, in many ways, prepared Esther without knowing all the ways. Number two, not only will you do you not know everything God wants to do with your child? Number two, you won't always have control. Number one, you don't, you're not always going to have control over your children's behavior. The legal age when a young person becomes an adult in the eyes of our government is 18. Now, that's not a biblical idea. Becoming an adult has way more to do with demonstrable maturity than it does a physical birthday. But that's not the point. When they turn 18, they can legally walk. You have to keep in mind that you have a very small window in which to direct, to guide, to control the direction, and to help chart the course of the lives of your children. You know, a lot of people, they want to have control over a long period of time But that's very, very limited. Now, I mentioned this already. Mordecai had influence. But influence and control are two different things. Number two, not only will you not, do you have, do you only have a limited time to control their behavior? Number two, you won't always have control over what happens to them. Look, we, we're seeing this right now in the life of our church. We see it in one of our young brothers that we're praying for. And every mom and dad would do everything they can to protect and to preserve their children. But we've got to be aware that sometimes God has different plans for our children than we would have. And we don't get to always have control over what happens to them or when it happens to them. And so that brings us to this place to where there is a problem There is a temptation to raise your children to be comfortable rather than to have godly conviction. Now, be honest with me about this. And I'm going to be honest with you. Number one, we all want our kids to be comfortable and to live comfortable lives. I do. And I'm not being silly in any way about that. I want my children to be comfortably I want my children to live comfortably in their relationships, specifically romantic relationships. I want my children to live comfortably financially. I want my children to live comfortably politically. I want my children to live comfortably religiously, if I can say it that way. I am am not hoping for my children to have lives of great discomfort. I want things to go well for them. That That is in my heart. Number two, please get this, that having comfort in your life isn't wrong. Every good gift is from above. 
and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness. And I understand that's not exclusively or even primarily talking about physical blessing, but it's okay to admit that God has blessed us, and especially in this country, even right now, we get to enjoy a great amount of physical comfort. Even when dealing with things that aren't comfortable, we still get to enjoy some comfort. You've heard missionary letters that we've read, how that an entire infrastructure can be wrecked and sent into chaos, and how that as a result, the people under that infrastructure are very uncomfortable and life is very difficult, even people that we care about. But please understand, in America, we enjoy a lot of comfort, and there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the reality. In order to do right, in order to serve God, conviction and comfort are not always compatible. Sometimes to be comfortable requires that you compromise. Sometimes, to live out godly conviction requires that you miss out on comfort, that you be willing to give up comfort. I know this isn't popular, and perhaps it even makes some of you cringe, but we need to be reminded of what the Word of God says, not just about ourselves, but about our children as well. Your children are not exempt from the truth and the cost of following Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 8. Don't lose your place in Esther, but Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse number 18. Matthew 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, He gave commandment to depart unto the other side, and a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Please get this. It's easy to declare that you want to follow Jesus Christ. It's another thing to actually be committed to following Jesus Christ, to live out that conviction when it's no longer comfortable. Notice what Jesus says to him in verse 20. Today, someone says, hey, we want to go with you. We want to follow We want to follow the Lord with you. We want to be a part of this ministry. Hey, great, praise the Lord. But Jesus wasn't interested in amassing a a crowd. He was interested in people understanding what it truly meant, what it really cost to follow him. And so he says in verse 20, And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he goes on to further elaborate on the cost of following him. Look with me if you would, in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse number 20. Excuse me, verse number 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come 
take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. This guy comes to Jesus enjoying a whole lot of physical luxury, and he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to serve God within the context of his comfort. But God doesn't allow his followers, God doesn't allow his people to dictate the circumstances through which they will follow him. Either we're committed to following him or we are not. And Jesus says to him, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to part with all of this stuff. And the man, when he was confronted with the conflict between his conviction and his comfort, he chose his comfort. You've got to understand that you can't raise your children both to have conviction and both and also to be comfortable. You have to decide as a parent whether or not to prioritize them being comfortable or them being discipled, having godly conviction. Meaning, you have to raise your children to realize they're not always going to get what they want. And they have to learn to do that with the right attitude. Your children need to understand that life's not always going to be easy. And they have to do that with the right spirit. You're going to have to teach your children that life's not always, they're not always going to be popular if they follow Jesus Christ. And they have to do that with humility. Their life's not always going to be fun or, or enjoyable. And they have to bear up under that yoke, trusting the grace of God. That life will sometimes be inexplicably hard and challenging, and yet you must continue to trust God and to follow Him. But you can also remind your children and teach them that a life of conviction will make an eternal difference, that you can be used of God far more than you believe is possible, and that you will have opportunities to help people. Think about that. People of comfort do right when it's convenient and easy, but people of conviction do right because it's right and it honors God. One day, West Valley Baptist Church is going to reflect how we've raised our kids, whether to be comfortable or to have godly conviction, whether to have musical comfort or musical conviction, whether to have doctrinal comfort or doctrinal conviction, whether just to get along with the general flow of society or to have biblical standards that do make us peculiar in a world that is rapidly running away from God's design. Our church will reflect that. Godly conviction produces consistency even in the face of great challenges. So I'm going to finish with this. I want to give you some practical tips for raising kids with godly conviction. And then I'll finish with a story. Number one, your standard must be the word of God. How you raise your children cannot be based on exclusively how you were raised, nor what is popular in the day, because those trends are always changing. You need to know what the Bible says about raising your children and the practical implications of it in the day-to-day rearing of them and bringing them up. And you need to submit yourself to that. Understand that raising your children in the biblical way is not convenient, nor is it easy. 
it will present its own challenges, but it's what produces the best results, specifically in affecting the heart of your children for God. Not only that, but you need to be able to show your children and others the what and the why from the Bible. This is why we do this. This is what we do because God says it, and this is why we do it. How you train and discipline and raise your children should be based on what the Bible says, not anything else. The, the wisest of men and professionals will never be wiser than the wisdom of God. In many areas, but specifically for tonight in it, when it comes to how you train your children. Number two, understand the difference between compliance and conviction. Many parents are satisfied as long as their kids don't embarrass them. Like, please don't embarrass me right now. Please just stop getting on my nerves. Watch this or eat this or just whatever I have to do to get you to comply with me. That, that, that provides some immediate ease, but some long-term loss. Following rules now is not the same as having a heart for God. One of the characteristics of Esther is the spirit that was so observable by many different people around her. Explain. You need to be able to explain why you do or don't do things, not just do or don't. One of the great failures of parents is that we have rules for our children that aren't, it's not even whether the rule is good or bad, but it's the spirit with which the rule is enforced and it's a lack of explaining from a biblical perspective why we have the rule. And it's also this, that when there is not a biblical, a biblical command, we're not able to connect it to principle or philosophy, and yet we treat it the same way. And sometimes you need to be honest with your children and say, look, the Bible doesn't 100% say this, but these are the principled reasons based on scriptural truth why we do this or why we don't do that. Number two, you need to pay attention to the spirit of the act, not just the act itself. So many parents settle for obedience with a bad spirit. My dad's standard, the way he communicated it to us, and I hated it at the time, was this. Obedience is not obedience just because you do what I tell you. You have to obey with the right attitude. And I hated having a right attitude. Sometimes I still don't enjoy having a right attitude. But pay attention to the spirit of the act, not just the act. Number three, treat the small things as big things. Obedience in little areas prepares them for obedience in big areas. When your children obey at a young age, celebrate that obedience. When they obey as young people and they become young adults, celebrate their obedience. And when they disobey at a young age, don't consistently just, oh, that's really cute, oh, that's really funny. Because one day they'll think disobedience in bigger areas is just cute or just kind of funny. And if you don't take disobedience seriously when they're young, they won't take disobedience to God seriously when they're older. It's not that your kids aren't capable. It's that many times as parents, we don't consistently hold the line as we should. Number four, stop trying to always make life easy for them. Oh, I'm, I love going outdoors with my kids, but when we go on hikes or we do a bike ride together, 
we don't go just to have a leisurely time. It's not a good time for me unless we're sweating, cramping, and out of breath. And sometimes that can cause some frustration. But my goal in doing things with my kids isn't to always make life easy. Some parents, you have that helicopter syndrome. And you're just hovering over everything that's going on with your kid's life, even when it's in your home. And that they don't even have room to fall and scrape their knee. Every obstacle has to be removed. Everything that could potentially pose any kind of difficulty or challenge to them has to be removed. And you're raising children that will one day be adults who don't know how to face adversity of any kind. And I was recently riding my bike with a couple of my boys. And we're going up a hill. And and I've got no problem with them that it's hard or that they occasionally need to stop and catch their breath. But what I'm not okay with is them quitting or them feeling sorry for themselves. And I don't come over there and just give them a hug because it's hard. I try to encourage them, but I try to remind them that you can press on through difficulty because one day, if God decides so, there might be some adversity far more important and significant than just riding your bike up a hill. It might be that they need to take a stand in a church or that they need to take a stand in a community, that they need to hold the line when it comes to marriage or when it comes to how children ought to be raised. Brothers and sisters, please Please don't put your head in the sand about this. Our nation is not getting more godly. And the less godly our nation gets, the more challenging it will become, not just for us, but for our children. And yet in so many instances, we are raising them to be too soft because we want to make life easy for them all the time. I'm not talking about being mean. But sometimes your kids need to work out disagreements with other people's kids without you always taking up your child's cause. Sometimes you need to be willing to admit that your child can be wrong. Sometimes you need to side with the authority of your children and not just always take up your child's cause. Listen, it's not that I think every authority that I allow my children to be under outside of me are perfect. I'm not perfect. But my children understand this is, a, this is a basic rule in the pile home that if you get in trouble with a teacher or with an authority, you're going to have trouble with dad and mom. I don't pull out the magnifying glass and start trying to find fault with the authority. I challenge my children to live their lives in a right way because one day God might want to use them or do something with them in challenging circumstances. Number five, this is the last thing and I'll be done. Live out conviction for them to see. Mordecai didn't just bring up Esther in faith. He lived out faith in front of her. You've heard me talk about this endlessly. But so many parents fail in raising their children, not not because they didn't tell them what to do, but they didn't show them what to do. And you can talk all day about the convictions that you express, but your kids need to see the convictions that you have. And I promise you this. and I'm I'm not even saying I like the answer, my children know what convictions I'm serious about. My kids hear me preach all the time, and they observe me in my home, and they can tell you what I'm serious about and what I'm not. Godly conviction produces consistency, even in the face of great challenges. There was a, here's the story, there was a, a father who was a pastor, and his son was engaged in the Civil War. I don't remember the date, 
but this father wrote him a letter that was um, preserved and uh, taken care of by the son, and it was uh, supposedly, it's been preserved and it's been passed on. So I'm not saying I've been able to confirm 100% that this is accurate, but there's a lot of historical information that would indicate this is as it was. These are some of the statements that the father made to his son while his son was engaged in battle in the Civil War. Take special care of your health. More soldiers die of disease than in battle. He said, be aware that God has placed you in the midst of thoughtless and unpardoned men. Men. What a beautiful thing it would be if you could win some of them to the Savior. He said this, as you will come into habitual contact with men of every grade, make special associates of those who in, whose influence on your character is felt to be good. This is, this is an incredible statement. The rules of war require prompt and unquestioning obedience. You may sometimes think the command arbitrary, and the officer and the officer superfluous but it is yours to obey but here's the main thing this is the main quote it's a long letter let me read this paragraph to you try to maintain your christian profession among your among your fellow soldiers i need not caution you against strong drink as useless and hurtful nor against profanity, so common among soldiers. Both these practices you abhor. Aim to take at once a decided stand for God. If practicable, have prayers regularly in your tent or, your, or unite with your fellow disciples in prayer meeting in the camp. Should preaching be accessible, Always be a hearer. Let the world know that you are a Christian. Read a chapter in the New Testament which your mother gave you every morning and evening when you can. And engage in secret prayer to God for his Holy Spirit to guide and sustain you. Listen to this closing sentence. I would rather hear of your death than of the shipwreck of your faith and good conscience. Brothers and sisters, I am afraid, not in this world that is without God, but within churches like West Valley, that we would rather have our children be comfortable than to live lives of godly conviction. I'll read the statement to you again. I would rather hear of your death than of the shipwreck of your faith and good conscience. I pray that by the grace of God, we would renew ourselves as authorities, whether it's as parents, extended family, children's workers in this church, to raise generations with godly conviction. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? just a moment, Brother Nate will begin to sing. 
want to want to ask you to be honest. Be honest about yourself. Be honest about yourself as a parent. Be honest about yourself as an authority. Do I care more about their comfort or their conviction? Do I care more about things being easy and popular? Or do I care more about them being useful to God and right with God? Can I say? And I and listen, brothers and sisters, you you don't you don't understand my heart if you think I say this lightly or without a trembling spirit. But it's a good barometer. Would I rather hear of their death than of the shipwreck of their faith and good conscience? Now, look, I understand God can bring them back, and I'm not advocating this stupidity that some people have said, well, it's better if this just happens to you, if you're not going to serve God. Man, God brings people back. God brought the prodigal son back. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what is our purpose in raising our children? What is, our, what is our passion? Is it that they would just live life and be happy? Or that they would be useful to God who will give them far greater joy than they can ever experience just living life for themselves? Please don't misunderstand the motive tonight. But if you would, ask yourself, are we raising our children with conviction? Father, thanks for the time. Help us help help our church as we respond to you in Jesus name amen while brother Nate sings you have an opportunity to respond to the Lord I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow Turning back. Sing that first verse one more time. You sing it out with Brother Nate. Sing it to the Lord. Lift it up. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turn. your attention this way. God bless you. Thank you for being a part of the services tonight. I sure do appreciate you. I miss you. I love you. I'm, I'm looking forward to this slowly being resolved over the coming days. Let me just remind you of a, a statement I made in the video that should still be accessible. Um, it's something that I referenced. There's obviously a lot of strong passion, as there should be, in a lot of questions that people have. And about how things are going and even how we as a church have handled and are handling this. I just want to remind you that there will be a time for dealing with those things, but I, I firmly believe this, that that time will be when we're all together again. And so I want to encourage you and ask you to continue to be patient. Thank you for the way that you're praying and staying engaged and please continue to work at that. Don't forget the contest. Take a picture of you interacting in your mom, with your mom to celebrate Mother's Day. And then if you would, please continue to pray for Paul. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but also continue to pray for Sam and Chalice. And uh, that baby who is around 21, 22 weeks, something like that, pray that God would allow her to 
at least reach the point to where the baby could be delivered and survive, and then just ask for God to give grace to them with however this all goes. Again, thank you for being a part of the service tonight. I appreciate you. I look forward to being with you on Wednesday night, the, the Lord willing. Have a good night and a great start to your week.